How's that? All right. You should turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Our text starts this morning in verse 25. Matthew 6, 25. While you're turning there, um, let me just ask, how many of you have seen the movie City Slickers? It's not a new movie, an old movie. Um, main character is played by Billy Crystal. It's about three guys who are from the city. Um, they have different problems that are going on in their life. They've got a lot of stress with the business world that they're in. Um, and so they decide as the three of them decide to take a couple of weeks to spend away from it, to get away from it all. And so they go for two weeks to take part in a cattle drive just to kind of unwind and to get the pressures of the business world off of their shoulders. So the main character, played by Billy Crystal, is on this cattle drive and he's in a conversation with an old cowboy about the purpose of life, which is something that people of every generation, have, they, there's always this seeking out, what is my, what's the purpose in life, why am I here? And so he's talking with this old cowboy about this and Yep. Yep. You mean I'm not loud enough to... So they are in this conversation about the purpose of life, and the old cowboy asks him, do you, do you know what the secret of life is? And then he holds up his finger and he says this. One thing. Just one thing. And Billy Crystal looks back at him, and he says, that's great, but what's the one thing? And he says, that's what you've got to figure out. Many of us go through life trying to figure that out. What is the secret to life? What is the purpose of life? There's got to be something more than just getting up and doing our daily routine and going to bed and then repeating it. So we look to all the things that this world can offer to make our lives have meaning, to have them mean something to the world and to other people. We look to the things of the world to figure out how we can be fulfilled in life. And even Christians who have the truth sometimes look in the wrong places. King Solomon had everything that you can imagine he had no needs in life, and he ran after all of the pleasures that life had to offer him, and he concluded that without God as the center of your life, everything else is meaningless. Well, Jesus lets us in on the secret, the one thing that is the most important thing that we need to be focusing our life on. Our life is short on this earth. When you, if you look at the timeline, we're just this little blip on the timeline. So Jesus helps us understand in this short time you have on this earth, here's the most important thing. So let's look at our text. If you have Matthew 6 opened, go ahead and stand if you would, if you're able to, to honor God as we read his word. So we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, so this is Jesus preaching still. Just some context, last week we discussed what he says right before this, which is basically... Um, gives them instructions on how to store up treasures in heaven and not to serve money or to run after earthly wealth. And then he says this in our text today. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about this life, 
what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for this reminder that we have from the mouth of Jesus. We talked last week about how the the hunger for wealth and the the running after the things of this world are things that Jesus talks about more than any other topic in the Gospels, which tells us that that is the topic that is most on the hearts and minds of people. And we all at times worry about the future. We all at times have gone through times in our life where where the next day is uncertain. And so I thank you for this reminder that we don't need to worry about those things because the one who's in control of those things is looking out for our needs. He's providing for our needs. He's taking care of us. So I just pray that as we study today that we would walk out of here being able to trust that more, that promise in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right. So um, before we get into the first point, I want to just real quickly do like a little... I want to track the flow of the sermon so far um, so that we can kind of see there's this, there's this theme that runs through. I, most of the sermons have been, have been titled with this thing at the beginning, raising the standard, um, and then something specific to the text, which is what Jesus is doing. But there's this other theme that I haven't mentioned to you yet that I want to show you today. If we track the flow of the sermon... What you're going to find is that Jesus is teaching us how to view things in life the way that God views them. And raising the standard is part of that. But in chapter 5, verses 21 to 48, that's, that's the section where he says, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. And so he uses examples like, you've heard that said, do not murder, but I tell you if you're angry with your brother, um, or do not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you even lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery. And so in that section, there are six of those in verses 21 to 48, and he explains how to view their theology from God's perspective. 
in chapter 6, verses 1 to 18, he explained how to view their religious practices from God's perspective. And so he discusses um, our giving and our prayer time and our fasting. And he shows the people how to view that from God's perspective rather than the perspective that they had been taught by the Pharisees and their teachers, the rabbis. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24, that's our text from last week, he explained how to view wealth from God's perspective. And in our text for today, 25 to 34, he explains how to view our daily needs from God's perspective. Last week, he was talking about wealth. He was talking about not heaping up the extras that we get in life in, in putting our hope in those things and in so doing so many people turn and make that an idol. But he wasn't talking at that point about necessities. Today he's talking about the necessities that we have in life and how to view those things from God's perspective. So as we get into our first point, the first point is be not concerned about this life. Be not concerned about this life. Verses 25 to 27, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? And then he uses the birds as an example. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. They don't do all this work to, to get these things that they need, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then he asks them this challenging question. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Now, I mentioned that the text from last week was this instruction to see, to properly view earthly wealth. But the fact is, most people didn't have extra stuff back at this time. You did have some. Kings were usually wealthy. But the average person in the community didn't have a bunch of extra stuff. They didn't have what would be considered wealth. And because food supplies were heavily dependent upon rainfall, you can understand how the anxieties of life would creep up in their, in their hearts and their minds. Because if they have a drought, you don't know if you're going to have food to eat. So Jesus reminds his listeners that God is, has always provided for his creation. God has always provided for his creation. And I want to read Psalm 104, verse 27 for you, just to show um, a place that we see where God has spoken through the psalmist about this particular thing. It says, all creatures look to you, God, all creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. And so all of creation looks to God for its needs. And we can see that, that promise fulfilled every day. If you just go out, he uses the example of the birds. Just go outside and watch the birds or any other animal, squirrels, whatever they're, especially getting ready for winter. Watch them. They go out. Everything that they need has been provided for them, and they just gathered up, and they have what they need for that day, and they don't worry. So if that's how God provides for his, for his creation, then 
if mankind is his most treasured possession, which we know from numerous passages of Scripture, then how much more will God provide for us when we have a need or we face some kind of situation that looks helpless? If he provides for the birds and the other animals and the things that his creation needs, and we are his most treasured possession of everything that he's created, then why would we ever doubt that God will provide for the things that we need? So in verse 28 and 30, Jesus goes on and gives another example. He says, why do you worry about clothes? And then he points to, there must have been, there must have been a field nearby. Um, they, they have a, an idea where they think Jesus was maybe located when he was giving the Sermon on the Mount. And there is a field nearby of wildflowers. So there must have been something visible that he could have pointed to. He says, see, the lily, see how the lilies of the field grow, or the flowers of the field. They don't labor, they don't spin, and yet they are so glorious that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of those. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Wildflowers didn't need any care. Um, you've probably all seen places on your drive home or around where you live. You've seen places where they're just growing, and nobody, you don't see people out there um, cultivating the ground and getting everything ready. They just grow on their own, and they are, they just create this beautiful, gorgeous setting as you drive by. And I want to give you a couple of examples where we used to live in Hamilton, um, the, m- most of the town was up on a hill. And you would, there was a hill, a road that ran down the hill down toward the river. And then it connected with a road that went north along the river. And this, this way took you over a bridge across the river. Down that hill, the whole hillside was covered with tiger lilies. And when they were in bloom, it was... It was gorgeous. Never once did I see anybody out there fertilizing them so that they would be able to grow. They grew all on their own. They don't need any help. And then if you get down to the bottom of the hill and you take a right to go north along the river, you, it's the Mississippi River, and you, you get to a specific point um, closer to Nauvoo where there, at certain times of the year there are lily pads all over there on the river there and the lily pads I never knew this growing up because I only saw lily pads like in cartoons or in pictures and so you just see the green pad with a frog on it you know when you are watching cartoons or something like that but so I didn't know that they bloomed and I was driving by one day and they were all in bloom they had these flowers sticking out the top of them and I was like man look at that so wildflowers don't need any kind of care God gives them everything that they need and Jesus says that Solomon, who had no need at all in his life, had everything at his fingertips, wealth, knowledge, servants, anything that he could have wanted. And Jesus says even Solomon doesn't compare to what God has done with the lilies of the field. Now, those flowers that are so b- beautiful when they're in bloom, eventually they come to an end because they're not 
They're not a, a plant that lasts through the winter. They're not an eternal thing. And so, especially with the heat of the summer, they would tend to, they bloom, they're there for a while, they dry up and they die. What they would do then is they would gather those up and they would use that as fuel for clay ovens. And so Jesus says to them, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, something that's going to die and is going to be used as fuel, but yet look at what God does for them. And so Jesus says, if that's what he does for them, will he not much more clothe you and I? So the question is this, if he goes to all that work for something that eventually dies off and is just burned up, then why would we doubt that he would be more concerned about us who don't just spring up for a short time and die and then, excuse me, then are used as fuel because he created us differently so why wouldn't he why wouldn't he provide for people and those who love him we were made differently we were created for the purpose of loving him we were created for the purpose of being in fellowship with him we were created in his image and if we are created in his image then we reflect his glory and if we reflect his glory, then why would he not provide for us? It would be a bad reflection on his glory if he didn't. Now, that image of the flowers that spring up and they bloom, but then the heat of the summer scorches them, they come to the end of their life, they die and dry up, and then they're used for fuel. That perishing image of the grass and the flowers as they dry up, is kind of a natural image for it's kind of a natural image for our life if we live our life and we last longer than flowers do because they just last a season but if we live our life and we are not connected to Christ if we're not grounded in Christ if he's not the the Lord and the center of our life then we live this short life and we die and then there's no hope And the scriptures actually frequently compares our lives to that kind of a thing. Psalm 103, 15 to 16. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it's gone and its place remembers it no more. Isaiah 40, 6 to 8. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All the people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So if that is what our life looks like, or if that's, if that's a, um, an illustration of our life, then... The key, the, the, the important thing for our life is to be able to understand that this life is not 
is not it. This is not, we don't just live this life and then things come to an end and, and that's it. There's something beyond this. And the thing that is beyond this is the thing that will not die. It does not come to an end. And it's God's word and God's promises. The key statement in this text this, that we've looked at so far in our text today, the key statement is when Jesus says, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? That's where our perspective needs to be adjusted so often. As important, and again, these are necessities, right? I made, it, I made it clear that Jesus is talking about the necessities of life in this text. These are necessities. You have to have them to live. But as important as the necessities are for this earthly life, even those needs are not the most important thing in life. The most important thing in life is a much deeper need, a need that you and I can't meet ourselves. And God will not only provide for those needs that we have physically in this life, but God will also provide for the greatest need, which is the forgiveness of our sins and salvation in the Son. Let's look at point number two. The first point is be not concerned about this life. Point number two, then, Jesus directs them where they need to be concerned about. So it's be concerned about God's kingdom. Be concerned about God's kingdom. So if we're not supposed to be concerned about the things of this life, Jesus says, let me, let me show you what you need to be focused on. In verses 31 and 32, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Now those questions, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear, what does that sound like to you? You don't have to answer, just think in your mind. Does that ring a bell? Because these questions, along with the lack of faith that came with these questions, reflect the questions that the grumbling Israelites in the wilderness wanderings were uttering. They were always complaining and grumbling about what is going to fill their stomachs. Exodus chapter 15, verse 24. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? They'd been in the desert. There isn't a drinking fountain just on every corner. They hadn't had anything to drink for a while. And even though God had proven himself over and over and over again throughout the the plagues in Egypt and the Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea, they still doubted him and were grumbling saying what are we going to drink in exodus 16 the next chapter verses 2 and 3 and then also in verse 8 in the desert the whole community grumbled against moses and aaron the israelites said to them if only we had died by the lord's hand in egypt there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death Moses said to them, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. And so the whole time that they were in the desert, they grumbled and complained about what they were going to eat and what they were going to drink, rather than trusting God who had proven himself over and over and over again. But before we get too critical of them, I know that there are times 
that I do the same thing and I'm not in nearly the dire situation that they were in in the wilderness. In fact, I was studying for this this week and was convicted because of something that I began to worry about that I don't need to worry about. Do you know what worry does to your life? I want to read Matthew 13, a couple verses from Matthew 13, where Jesus tells us what happens to our life when we worry instead of trusting God. Verse 7, so this is just context. This is the parable of the, the sower who scatters the seed and it lands on the four different types of soil. Verse 7 says, other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. And then he continues the, the parable, but then later on his disciples ask him for to explain it all to him to them. And so in verse 22, he's explaining about the seed that falls among the thorns. And he says, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. So do you know what worry does to your life? It does two things. It, worrying about this life prevents growth in our walk with Christ. Worrying prevents growth in our walk with Christ. And worrying about this life causes an unfruitful ministry. It stunts your growth as you're walking with Christ, trying to walk in faithfulness with him. And any kind of ministry that you might have, whether that's to your family or to friends or specific ministry in the church that you take part in, Whatever ministry you're a part of, it's unfruitful. Jesus says, the seed that fell among the thorns refers to someone who hears God's word, hears his promises, knows what the promises are, but the worries of life, and note that he says the deceitfulness of wealth. He just came out of a section where he was talking about how to rightly view earthly wealth. The worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke God's word, choke the promises in our life so that we worry and we don't trust him and we place our trust in other things. But God wants us to trust him. And so we have to ask ourselves, take a, take a look at your own life and ask yourself, do I trust God or are there places, areas of my life, specific things in my life where I have not trusted him, where I've held on to control of that rather than letting go of it so that he can be in control of it? Because there are lots of different things in life that we put our hope and our trust in. I'm going to just list three of them and give you some examples, but um, these are just some common things. This is just common that I think would be common to most people. This is not even getting into the deeper levels of things where we might be wrapped up in some kind of a sin that's causing us to put our trust in other things. But this is just, I think, what would be common to people. We trust people, the first one. We trust people, other people, more than we trust God. Now think about this. 
just some examples of things where we put our trust in people. And it's kind of a scary thing, but we, you know, we, we go ahead and we do it and we don't, we, you know, we don't have any reason to think why they wouldn't fulfill or, or take care of us. So think of a little child standing on the edge of the pool with a parent standing in the water. The parent's up to their chest in water, so they're clearly standing on the bottom and can keep the child out of the water should there be danger. And the parent's urging the child, trust me, trust me, just jump, trust me, you'll be okay. And then eventually the child trusts the parent, even though should the parent drop them, there's no way that they can swim, they're too little, they don't know how, there's no way they could stand on the bottom and have their head out of the water, and yet they trust their parent. Think of another example is like team building events that you take part in. Like if you you have some colleagues you work with, sometimes they will take a retreat and they'll go to a camp and they'll spend time working on things that build team with team building skills, just to build that camaraderie, the trust among each other, the relationships and friendships among each other. And in those situations, a lot of times there's a thing which most of you have probably done this before, um, a trust fall where someone stands on a platform and the rest of your team makes two parallel lines out from the platform and you stand with your back to them and you're told to just fall backwards and hope that they catch you. We hesitate sometimes because that's kind of a scary thing, but I've never heard of somebody doing something like that with a group of people and getting up there and being so distrustful of people that they didn't do it. Eventually, you trust them, you fall backwards, and perhaps 99% of the time they catch you. But we put our trust in people. And sometimes we put our trust in people more than we put our trust in God. Another thing that we trust, we put our trust in things. We put our trust in things. When I was thinking about what kinds of things people put their trust in, I'm, I'm not a risk taker. I'm not a daredevil. Um, one time I did something that I could have ended up getting hurt when I did it. And when I realized after I did it the first time, I was like, I'm done. I'm not doing that again, even though everybody else continued to go back up and do it. Um, so I'm not that kind of person, but, but I know people who love to take risks and something that you couldn't pay me enough money to do is bungee jump because those people are putting their trust in a cord and I guess in a sense they're putting their trust in people as well because they're trusting the people who engineered the cord, okay? But ultimately, they're putting their trust in the cord that it's going to function the way that it's supposed to so that you, you stop, you know, before you smash your head on rocks and it brings you back up and then you gently bob up. The gently bobbing up and down I think I might be okay with, but it's the initial plunging. Um, I would... I could just tell you right now, if I ever went bungee jumping, that would be the one time the cord would malfunction and I'd be dashed to pieces on the rocks. But we put our trust, like that's, that's kind of an important thing there. Like you're putting your trust in a piece of equipment that 
could fail, and if you do, you're going to plunge to your death. Another thing, anytime you and I get in a car, we're trusting that the car is going to function the way that it's supposed to. We trust that the car will function at high speeds the way that it's supposed to. And we don't usually put a second thought about getting into a car and driving. So we put our trust in things. It's not, it's not bad to trust people. And it's not bad to trust things to function the way that they're supposed to. But do we put our trust in those things more than we trust God? Because the people who go bungee jumping that don't think twice about it, or the people who get into a car that don't think twice about it, are sometimes the same people who think, I have to fix, my f- I have to fix what's going to happen tomorrow because I'm concerned about where we're going to get food, or I'm concerned about how this is going to work out, rather than turning to the God who has said, don't worry about tomorrow, just worry about seeking me. Another thing, the third thing that we put our trust in is we put our trust sometimes in ourselves. And, you know, I like to be in control. Um, if I'm riding in a car, I want to be driving. I don't want to be riding. I want to be the one in control. I hate flying because I'm not in control. So I am, there are parts of my life that I am totally a control freak. And I put my trust in myself to be able to drive and maneuver the car the way that it's supposed to and avoid any kind of accidents more than I trust other people who might be driving. Um, another kind of situation that this might fall into that might fall into this category is that um, I recently talked with somebody who was going through something that was hard for them to go through and the person said I've always been able to handle things like this. And so what I gathered was that in the past, anytime there was a situation like this, um, maybe not specifically like that, but something that brought about this kind of stress or this kind of um, worry or this kind of pain or whatever it might have been, they've always been able to, by themselves, fix that situation for themselves. They've always been able to handle this Um, And the person told me, I don't know how to handle this. And so I had a conversation with them about, you've always been able to handle things. This is something you're not going to be able to handle. Maybe God is trying to encourage you to trust in him and not try to fix it yourself. But we do that, don't we? We put trust in ourselves. We try to fix our problems. We like to be in control of what's going to happen tomorrow and in our future we try to make sure that if we've messed up that we fix it rather than just trusting that God will forgive and fix the problem for us by bringing about reconciliation we like to be in control we trust ourselves to handle those things but Jesus says in verse 33 after he says don't worry about those things your father knows you need them after he's telling them, don't, don't put your hope and your trust in things of this world. Don't be concerned about the things of this world. But in verse 33, this is the clencher. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. 
And you don't need to worry about those other things that will be given to you as well. You just need to be concerned about God and his righteousness and walking with him. Therefore, verse 34, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. How many of you fret about the future at times? Whether it's the financial future or whether it's the crazy that's going around the world right now. We don't know. There's so much that's uncertain in the world today. How many of you, if you have kids or grandkids, have at some point worried about what they were going to turn out like? Be honest. (laughs) So we all worry about the future. And Jesus says, Jesus says, don't, you're not even promised tomorrow. We're never promised tomorrow. And because of that, then we, should foc- we shouldn't focus on tomorrow. We need to focus on today. And our focus today needs to be God's kingdom and his righteousness. Now, it's okay to plan for the future. That's not a bad thing. And God's okay with that as long as, according to James 4, you understand that tomorrow will only come if God is willing And let me just tell you that if I learned one thing as a chaplain in a hospital, I learned that nobody is guaranteed tomorrow. I had people who were younger than me. I think this is kind of young. My kids would say this is old. But I had people who were younger than me come in in cardiac arrest. They were going about their day, their mid-30s. They have their whole life ahead of them. They come in in cardiac arrest, and they had no idea that that's that they're not going to come out of it. I had people who were younger than me who died of cancer because it had taken over their whole body and they couldn't, there was nothing that could be done for them. And so actually a girl that I went to high school with, I did her memorial service this past summer, this summer. Um, She was a year younger than me and I was at the hospital and I walked into the room and she was there and she was in state, she had stage four cancer and they didn't give her much time to live. If I learned anything, I learned that nobody is promised to tomorrow. The promise is that God is with us today and he is there to provide for our needs today. And if he grants us tomorrow, then he'll do the same at that time. The key, the secret to life, the one thing that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon, that the, the one thing that really matters is to seek after God's kingdom and his righteousness. It's a pursuit of intimacy with Christ that personal relationship that saves us. That's pursuing his righteousness. It's also a deep concern to share that with those who don't know Christ personally. That's pursuing his kingdom. We often get ourselves wrapped up in the things of this life and we find ourselves anxious over them. And it's really easy to do. I mean, I'm Mr. Anxiety. Um, Sadly, I've passed that on to people in my family. But... I do it too. I, I, I frequently am anxious about much of life. But if we focus on the two things that Jesus instructs here, God's kingdom and his righteousness, 
then God will give you his perspective. He will allow you to view those things that you're worrying about from his perspective. Then, when you get his perspective, all of those things seem less important as you dwell in the glory of God, your provider. They, they pale in comparison to the things that you, when you see things from God's perspective, then you understand the things that are the most important in life and the things that you need to be pouring yourself into. And it's not anxiety and worry over things of life. It's pouring yourself into knowing Christ. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Paul writes concerning this very thing. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And listen to this, the peace of God. It's not peace that you can bring or that other people can bring or things can bring. The peace of God that only can come from God's Spirit working in your life, which transcends all understanding. It's a peace that comes when maybe it doesn't make sense or it's not reasonable that it should be there. You're at peace and you can't, you can't explain why. Because all of your circumstances say that you should be anxious and you should be fretting and you should be worrying about all this thing, all the stuff that's going on around you and what's going to happen to your life. And God says, I'm giving you my peace. And it's a peace that you can't even, you can't even explain. And other people can't explain, but you've got it. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So God has promised to provide for and to take care of his creation, especially people because we are his most treasured possession. He will take care of you if you trust in him. The next time that you're anxious about life, remember that this is a promise And God always keeps his promise. Let's pray. God, we thank you for that promise. We thank you that there is, in in the midst of life where there is much that we find to, to worry about, that all that needs to happen is we need to trust in you, seek after you, and let you give us your perspective so we view things the way that you do because that will adjust our heart and our mind will be able to see things clearly. We'll be able to see what's important and the other things will fade and pale in comparison. And then when we do that and we pursue after knowing you, knowing your righteousness, we pursue after building your kingdom, which is the most important thing in this world. The things of this world are not the most important thing. The most important thing is is knowing you and and helping other people to know you so that when this world comes to an end, eternity is secure with you. So give us the ability to see that and not worry about things of this, of this life. And thank you for the teaching that Jesus gives us here. It's in his name we pray. Amen.